and read from chapter 3. Let me pray before we do that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that in the Bible you speak to us. Thank you that you have spoken to us already this morning, challenged us, comforted us, encouraged us. And Father, we ask that you would do that again, that you would pour out your spirit, that we would be convicted of sin, that we would believe, uh, receive and believe the gospel, that we would be filled to overflowing with the joy of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be with Peter again as he speaks to us. Lift our hearts in praise to you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianot. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendour was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the days of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. Well, the great danger of being at a conference after lunch is that you may fall asleep. That is not a permission, that's just a statement of what might happen. And I know that hearing is hard work. Of course, the other danger is the speaker might fall asleep. <laughs> it would be a very quiet afternoon indeed. <laughs> and my favourite story of preaching is of a preacher who dreamt that he was preaching and woke up and found that he was. <laughs> Could be a shock for everybody, couldn't it? <laughs> My other favourite story is of an 18th century preacher in Oxford who preached for three hours. At the end of the sermon, there was one person left in the congregation who was later discovered to have died mid midway through the sermon. <laughs> but what a lovely way to go with the words of God flowing around your mind. <laughs> Pray for a happy death. But please wave your hand just so we know to take you out. Well, Habakkuk chapter 3, let's look first of all at verses 1 and the end of 19. Uh, what we have here is a prayer of the Habakkuk the prophet. So now this is, we've had God speaking <laughs> from chapter 2 verse 2, the Lord speaking, now this is Habakkuk's words. And the musical term on Shigionoth reflects the fact that in verse 19, uh, the end of verse 19, the last words of the book, it's for the director of music on my stringed instruments. So the prophecy or the prayer of Habakkuk becomes a prophecy or a prayer for the people. And one of my uh, students at present is working on the place of music in prophecy, which is just fascinating. And uh, one of the purposes of music in prophecy is to help you remember it, and so you sing it, and so the words of the prophecy are actually in your mouth. Isn't that amazing? So that's what happened to this prayer uh, of Habakkuk. His prayer became, if you like, a prophecy. As also his complaints against God became his prophecy. As also the Lord's reply, replies to him, became his prophecy. Now what happens in this prayer? It begins with... Uh, Habakkuk remembering what has happened in the past. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And the deeds that Habakkuk remembers or that he's heard of and he stands in awe of the deeds are the deeds of God rescuing his people from the power of Egypt bringing them through the, uh, sending the plagues on Egypt, then setting his people free through the Red Sea, and then bringing them through the, the other lands eventually into the promised land. 
So what Habakkuk is doing is, if you like, standing on the tightrope of faith. As he looks back to think what God did so long ago, he wasn't around then, okay? And as he looks forward to see what God will do in the future. Now, people who don't read the Bible carefully often think that there are miracles happening every day. You know, the miracle is an everyday event in the Bible. But actually, the the long-term experience of the people of faith in the Old Testament is not that miracles happen every day, but that they have, have to live between remembering the past and hoping for the future. That's what it is to live by faith, to know that what God has done in the past, he will do in the future, or what Habakkuk is doing is saying, you did this in the past, please do it in the future. So he's saying, you did a mighty thing, God, when you defeated the power of Egypt, that great world power, and you brought your people safely from Egypt into the promised land. That was a great work of God, the Exodus. And now he's saying, well, I, I remember that, I knew of that, I know of that, now please do it again. You've promised in chapter 2 to break the power of Babylon, please do it and bring your people uh, back to the land. So the Exodus behind him, the, the return from exile ahead of him. Yet, of course, when he's speaking this, He's still waiting for the, exodus to ha- for the exile to happen. Babylon actually hasn't arrived. He just knows that Babylon will arrive. Babylon will destroy Jerusalem, tear down the walls and the temple, and take the leaders off into exile. And then one day in the future, uh, the Persians will come and defeat the Babylonians and the people will come home. And notice what he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame, I stand in awe of your deeds. So the whole purpose of rehearsing what happened in the Exodus again and again, generation after generation, was that people would retain their confidence in the God of the Exodus. Remembering the past is a way of sustaining faith in the present. And we do that, don't we? we? We look back not only to the Exodus and the return from exile, but also to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we live on the tightrope of faith as well, caught between the first coming of Christ and his return. And our basis of hope for the future is what God has done in the past. We know what God is like from what God has done and what God has said, the words and works of God. And please notice that what fills Habakkuk's mind now is the deeds or the works and the fame of the Lord. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And then this this beautiful prayer, renew them in our day, in our time make them known. So he's saying, God, do it again. But notice the end of the prayer in verse 2, in wrath remember mercy. Now that is a great prayer to remember. In wrath remember mercy. See, if you pray for Australia, that's a great prayer to pray, isn't it? God, in your wrath, remember your mercy. When you're praying for unbelievers to be converted, it's a great prayer to pray. In your wrath, remember your mercy. When you're praying for yourself, you might pray it. In your wrath, remember your mercy. And when you pray for all the nations of the world, it's a great prayer to pray. In wrath, remember mercy. For surrounded by God's wrath, the only escape is not to run away. (laughs) The only escape is the mercy of God. Like the end of Psalm 2, refuge in God. Now, as I'm going to show, I hope uh, those those four words in Ross Remember Mercy are, are a key to the meaning of this book.
Well, let's now look at uh, the next section, verse 3, following, which is uh, Habakkuk reminding himself and God and the people of the great acts of God in the past. And what he's describing there is the God who came from Mount Paran, came from Teman, whose glory covered the heavens, his praise filled the earth. And I hope, as Carl Riddich, you heard the kind of the drama of the language. It, what, what, that, what the dramatic language does is to balance the dramatic language of uh, chapter 1, where God describes the Babylonians coming with all their power. Now Habakkuk is describing God's great power, which is greater than the power of the Babylonians. And it's very inflated language. It kind of it gets, he gets very steamed up about it because he must to praise the greatness of God. So his glory filled the heavens, his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague and pestilence, the plagues and pestilence of Egypt went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. And then the way in which he uses the language of God, shaking the earth and the waters, uh, as a way of saying God uh, overturns the, the ordinary pattern of the world in breaking the power of Egypt. And God overturns the natural pattern of, of the world in bringing these plagues on Egypt. When I, I was at school, we had uh, a, a chaplain whose main aim in life was to prove that the miracles of the Bible didn't happen to make faith more easy for us. And I can't tell you how boring it was as we went through every miracle in the Bible and he disproved them. So uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel had a bottle of kerosene, not water as you might have thought. And he poured kerosene over the sacrifice, lit a match, and then the fire of God flew up, you see. And the feeding of the 5,000, well, everybody actually had their lunch in their pocket, and they were all too embarrassed to bring it out. And the little boy brought out his lunch. Then all of a sudden, everybody brought their lunch out, you see. And you thought Jesus walked on the water? No, it was just on a sandbank. And those stupid fishermen couldn't tell the difference between a sandbank and the Sea of Galilee. Well, I wasn't yet a Christian, but even I thought these miracles were easier to believe than the explanations. Not only that, but our chaplain was inconsistent, I hasten to point out, because once a term he would make an impassioned plea for sexual purity. Well, I thought either you believe in miracles or you don't. (laughs) It seemed a vain prayer, in my opinion, in our school. But here is Moses celebrating the great power of God. He, shook and, he stood and shook the earth, made the nations tremble, the ancient mountains crumbled, the age-old hills collapsed, his ways are eternal. And then the countries around about, as they go into the promised land, tents of cushion distressed the dwellings of Midian in anguish. And then this great kind of rhetoric, were you angry with the rivers? Was your wrath against the streams? Of course, no, the anger was against Egypt, wasn't it? God was judging the, the gods of Egypt, God was judging the gods of Egypt. You uncovered your bow, you called many arrows, split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, torrents of waters swept by the deep roared, Uh, sun and moon stood still at your flying arrows, the lightning of your flashing spear. Notice the word in verse 12, in wrath you strode through the earth, in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour us, the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. 
So here is the mighty work of God. And Habakkuk is saying to God, I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew these deeds, verse 2, in our day. In our time make them known. What a great prayer. In our time make them known. Remind us of your great deeds in the past. Renew them in our day. In your wrath, please remember your mercy. Well, so much for the great power of God. What's Habakkuk's response to this revelation? Verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Quite right too. Here is a God who judges his own people by sending the Babylonians. Here is a God who then judges the Babylonians to bring his people home. Well might you quiver before this great and mighty God. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. What pure and perfect trust in the promises of God. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Extraordinary words of faith, aren't they? I've met, met so many young Christians who've been converted by the following kind of gospel. Uh, the world won't give us peace. If you want peace, you must come to God. Or, the world won't give you happiness, but if you want happiness, you must come to God. And what produ- that produces is generations of young people whose God is actually peace or happiness, not God at all. God is just a means to an end. I remember one young man at St. Jude's many years ago. Uh, he'd, he'd, I'd married him to his wife and so forth. And uh, he was giving up Christianity and his wife. And he came to see me. I remember standing in the kitchen with him and he was saying, God promised me peace and I haven't got it. So I'm going away from him. So I said, that means you actually valued peace rather than God. You actually valued the gift, not the giver. You've never really served God at all. No, he said, I haven't. But as we've uh, sung just a moment ago, how easy it is to praise God in times of prosperity and how hard it is to praise God in times of adversity. Now, a friend of mine came from East Africa to work in Melbourne and he said the thing which struck him most of all about visiting churches in Melbourne was how often people said to God uh, or said in in the service how blessed we are in Australia. And he said, well, actually, the... East Africans might not think that because although you're very prosperous, your churches are empty. What is real blessing from God? And he was making the point that from an East African perspective, ours is a parched land. 
without lots of conversions happening. It just shows, doesn't it, how easily we're seduced by the idols of Australia. We think prosperous means good. Sometimes prosperous means bad. Remember the seed, choked, choked by the concerns of life and so on. So, of course, the people whose faith sustains us, the people who actually strengthen us to continue, are not those who are having happy times and can sing about it, but those who are going through very hard times and still maintain their trust in God. And that's something that I think our generation of Christians has lost, which previous generations knew. So I love the story of Henry Venn, who was one of the great evangelical leaders in England uh, in the 18th century. His wife had died and he was, te- he was educating his five children in the vicarage. One day he said to them, I'm going to show you a remarkable sight today. And that kind of, what is it, Dad? You know. And uh, just as the sun was setting, he took them out to a, they lived in Huddersfield, he took them out to the poorest part of Huddersfield where a young uh, man called Abraham Midwood uh, was dying in poverty and in great pain. And Abraham was a believer, you see. And uh, Henry Venn had organised beforehand for it to take his children to visit Abraham. Imagine a modern father doing this, see. And he said, now, Abraham, I brought my children because I want you to tell them if it's worth being a Christian. And Abraham replied, I can't remember the words exactly, it was just beautiful, he said, oh yes, I wouldn't exchange my presentation with anybody in the world for the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and having assurance of salvation and eternal life. What an amazing lesson for a father to teach his children that you can have nothing and have a trust in Jesus Christ. You can have nothing and be perfectly happy. I challenge those of you who are fathers, see if you can teach your children that lesson. Because the lesson they're learning from the world around them is that you're happy by having everything you want. And the reality is that is not true. When young George Whitfield went to a university as a new Christian, he was at first quite popular because he was, uh, you know, a well-behaved young man and respectful of his elders and betters. But as he became more Christian, the college turned against him. And people who'd been his friends deserted him. Uh, People threw mud at him. And he was called before the master of the college because he'd been visiting the poor in prison and the master didn't approve. And George Whitfield writes in in his journal after this, these adversities, though mild, were a great benefit to me. Isn't that amazing? These adversities, though mild, were a great benefit to me. They lessened my self-love and taught me to endure persecution for the sake of Christ. It's not a bad lesson to learn, is it? From a bit of mild persecution? Well, I'm a wimp, I must confess. When my fig trees don't bud, there are no grapes on the vine... When my olive crop fails and there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, I grumble. Habakkuk rejoices. 
I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. It's a very remarkable response. But it's even more remarkable when you think what time it is according to verses 16 and 17. Let me read some words from uh, Deuteronomy. If you fully obey the Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy 28, and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations on earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in your city and blessed in your country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and when you go out. However, verse 15, if you do not obey the Lord your God, do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, all these curses will come upon you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. And the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. So what time is it in Habakkuk 3, verses 16 and 17? Not just a time of adversity, but a time of God's curse on his people. His covenant curse. Not just that things are difficult. It's wonderful that someone who's facing difficult times would say, I will rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God my Saviour. But Habakkuk's statement of faith is even more extraordinary than that. It is saying, even when you do judge your people, we stand under your judgment, O God, I'll still trust you as Saviour. He was praying for judgment. God said, I'll deliver it. And Habakkuk says, even when you are judging us, I'll still trust you as my Saviour. In wrath... God will remember mercy. Isn't that extraordinary? The very thing he's prayed for in wrath remember mercy, he's saying he trusts God will deliver. That in the midst of God's wrath, God will deliver his mercy. That in the midst of his wrath, he will be a merciful God. Now it seems to me this is an extraordinary moment of Old Testament faith, isn't it? An outstanding example of belief in the Old Testament. the kind of faith that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3, doesn't he? All who rely on observing the law are under curse, for it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. They had not done everything in the book of the law. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And it seems to me that if Habakkuk could look forward and see the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, he would say, Lord, in your wrath you are remembering your mercy. For as there was darkness over the land of Egypt, so there was darkness when Christ was crucified. God's wrath was being poured out. But in God's wrath he remembered his mercy as he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Seems to me that Habakkuk has gospel faith in God. Isn't that right? He takes the justice of God, the wrath of God seriously, but believes in the midst of wrath, he will find the mercy of God. Now what do we do today with wrath and mercy? Lots of Christians give up the idea of the wrath of God. 
as being unpalatable to the people of the 21st century. But the reality is, if you don't know that God is a wrathful God, you will not know that God is a merciful God. See, if you don't take the wrath of God seriously, you judge the love of God by whether he's giving you what you want. About the, you, you judge the wrath by the love, the love of God by his gentleness with you and his provision for you, by your prosperity, by your happiness, by your comfort, by your security. And if you don't know the wrath of God, then you won't know the mercy of God. For in the New Testament, the great sign of God's love every time, every time is that God has given his son, that God son of the world, he gave his only son. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as the saviour of the world. So the, the, you, you only know the mercy of God if you know the wrath of God. If you drop the wrath of God, you don't know the mercy of God. And others are only too aware of the wrath and judgment of God and don't know the mercy of God. And that's a particular problem for children brought up in Christian homes. Sometimes they pick up the rules and not the kindness, the grace, the mercy of God. And I think it's often true with newly converted parents. They're so, so, they have such a strong desire to, to protect their children from the evils they've done that they work very hard to keep all the rules in place. And what the children pick up is rules and not kindness. And what other people do, I think, in trying to think, well, how, does, how do wrath and mercy link together? They kind of modify both so they're not as extreme. They kind of bring them together by denying both and say, well, God is indifferent. But Habakkuk gets it right. He can see the wrath of God and he trusts in the mercy of God. Though the fields produce no produce, there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. On the day of your wrath, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God my Saviour. Then he speaks of his confidence in God, that God will enable him to stand even as he waits for God's wrath and waits for God's mercy. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And then what Habakkuk has learned at great personal cost, he then wants to share with the people as he writes the words and writes the song. And the people sing the song of God's wrath, God's power, and God's mercy. Finally, let's uh, turn to this phrase from chapter 2, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, in the NIV version I have, it says the righteous will live by his faith. In the most recent NIV, I think uh, it's the righteous will live by faithfulness which sounds a bit confusing. I think the uh, faithfulness is the kind of faith which is constant. It's enduring faith. It's not faith for a moment. It's faith which persists in difficult times. So if I, when I ask uh, people, are you a believer? Some of them say, well, I became a believer when I was two or something like that. Uh, and I say, but are you a believer now? <laughs> That's the question, you see. 
You had faith 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 90 years ago. My question is, are you still trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation? Or have, having begun with grace, have you now moved on to works and thinks that it's up to you to uh, keep yourself and change yourself? Now, the kind of faith that Habakkuk's talking about, that God is talking about indeed, is enduring faith and persistent faith and transformative faith and productive faith. The kind of faith which not only sustains us through difficult times and our awareness of God's judgment, but also it's transformative of us. That is, we're actually changing the way we live. Whenever I go to a minister's conference to speak, I ask the ministers, how long it since is it since you've changed the way you live by reading the Bible? It's a great question to ask, you see. What, what preachers are doing every Sunday is telling other people, you must change, this is what the Bible says. So I'm saying to the ministers, have you changed because of what you found in the Bible? And if the answer is not for 20 years, then something is wrong. Because, God, because what God does through his words is continually transform us. I hope that's the case with you. You mustn't say, well, I turned away from sin 40 years ago. My question is, are you dying to sin today and living to righteousness today? Is that the kind of faith you have? And then I see ministers, and Christians indeed, who are still faithful, that is, they're still constant in their obedience, but they've lost hope in God. They're going through the motions of the Christian life or the motions of Christian ministry, but they don't actually believe anything will happen. But they don't know what else to do. They don't have the guts to go away and abandon God, nor do they have the guts to believe in him. So my question is, do you have faith? Are you now living by faith? by a faith which, through which God is transforming you, a faith which is seeing the hand of God at work. It's the life of faith, the constancy of faith, the endurance of faith, which shows that it is real faith in Christ Jesus and in the power of God. Let's look uh, just briefly at the three uh, times in the New Testament when the righteous will live by faith is referred to. So, Please turn, first of all, to Romans chapter 1. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then Paul continues, the wrath of God is being revealed. And it's so striking, I think, that he quotes the words from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith, in the very context of talking about the revelation of the wrath of God. First of all, the wrath of God against the Gentiles, because although they knew God, they did not glorify God or give thanks to God. In claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. So when God's wrath is being poured out on the Gentiles, the righteous will live by faith. And then, of course, Paul has a go at the Jews, because although they know God, they don't serve him. Paul's conclusion, none is righteous, no, not one. So, but Paul is saying in the midst of the pouring out of God's wrath, how will the righteous live? The answer is by faith. By a lively faith in God and in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, next reference, 
I've quoted some of these words already uh, today. Let's pick it up at verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it's written, Curses is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. There, there are the words from Habakkuk. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So the curse which was our due was borne by Christ in our place. He redeemed us so that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. I spent five years of my life trying to live a Christian life between the ages of uh, 11 and 16. I met these lovely Christian people in church. They were wonderful, godly people. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, I have to be like them. You see, the sheer quality of their lives attracted me, and yet it made me fearful because I knew that my life wasn't as good as their wonderful lives. The vicar in the church uh, I I was going to at that stage, his mother was murdered, raped and murdered. 82-year-old mother was raped and murdered. Remember the vicar saying, uh, publicly in church, well, I've forgiven. I've forgiven that man for what he did. And I thought, that's an amazing thing. I could never do that. So the purity and quality and decency and holiness of these Christians drove me to despair. Then someone kindly sat me down and explained that actually it wasn't by becoming a better person I'd become a Christian, but by trusting in God's mercy and Jesus Christ. And I still remember the pattern of the carpet on the floor of his study as I stared at the carpet listening to this wonderful story of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Nothing I could do. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And we are not justified by our success in our own lives, in the lives of our family, or in our ministry. We are saved solely by the death of Christ. And the third reference is in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 36 to 39. Paul's, uh, in this, these verses, kind of warming up, uh, sorry, the writer is warming up towards his great list of by faith in chapter 11. Uh, he writes in 10.35, Don't throw away your confidence, you'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So to live by faith is to live by faith in the midst of the wrath of God. To live by faith from Galatians is not to trust in our own works, but in the mercy of God and the curse that Jesus bore in our place. And to live by faith here in Hebrews is to live by enduring faith. And I love the fact that in chapter 11, uh, all the examples, the beginning, all the examples of faith are kind of people who triumph through faith. So um, uh, 
Abraham offers a sacrifice and um, Moses uh, chooses to be mistreated with the people of God. Regards disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value. The treasures of Egypt left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible and kept the Passover and so on. The great victories of the people of God. The second half is about people who faced trial and death for the sake of Christ, for the sake of God. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. It's rather like the movement in the book of Acts, you know, the first half of Acts, Paul is out winning battles and converting people and so on. Then he's captured, he's passive, he's under the control of the Jews and then the Roman Empire and he's not powerful and yet he still persists trusting in God and enduring in his ministry. Well, brothers, I hope each one of you is living by faith. That is, you haven't moved into that quiet cynicism of middle age or old age where you know it's all true but are not putting it into practice. If you're in that place, please move away from it today. Please repent. It's a very boring place to be. You'll become a boring Christian and no inspiration to anyone. You'll be disgusted with yourself and disgusted with God. In my prayers each day in the morning, I list the things I trust. I say to God to renew my trust. I say it because, it's, because I'm a person who's naturally faithless. I say that I do trust that your son is the saviour of the world. I do trust your son Jesus Christ is the powerful saviour, head, lord and judge of his church. I do trust you as a God who judges justly. If I don't reinforce my trust in God at the beginning of the day, I find that it evaporates very quickly or is never aroused. So I say this to God because I'm saying, when I say to God, I do trust you today, then I'm trying to make myself live that way. And the great advantage of living a long time is that you see more and more of how God is gracious and fulfills his promises. I was converted at the age of 16, and I began working on my family as quickly as I could, of course, my mother was converted the next year and my sister the year after. But my two older brothers remained uh, obdurately uh, not Christian. I did try to talk to them. Uh, when I gave my 50th, had a 50th birthday, I gave the party so I could give my testimony. And that went down like a lead balloon, I can tell you. Anyway, a couple of years ago, my brother John was in hospital dying. I was overseas. He had a week to live. And uh, so I went to see him, and I said, John, I've come to read the Bible and pray with you. Now, John was a farmer and a decent bloke, a great bloke, uh, very friendly, very thoughtful, but he'd never responded to any invitation I made to talk about God. I said, I've come to read the Bible and pray with you. Great, said John. I thought, what? <laughs> I can't believe it. So we did that. The next day I went back and we prayed and talked again. The next day I went back. And uh, I said, now, John, I imagine you'd like to pray, but you don't quite have the words to pray. So I'd like to pray a prayer for you. If you want to say amen, please say amen. So I thought, what would my brother John pray? Uh, so I said, um, thank you, God, for mum and dad, for my lovely brothers, Peter and Bill. 
he didn't say I meant that bit, but anyway, uh, for my lovely wife Helen and my daughters and grandchildren and so on, he's a great tennis player. Thank you for the farm and thank you for tennis. And uh, thank you for, um, for loving me and... Thank you for sending your son to die for me. Amen, came from the bed. Uh, and he said, would, would you take my funeral? So I said, oh, it'll be a Christian funeral. Oh, yes, he said, that's exactly what I want. My brother John wanted a Christian funeral. And he was the final message John left behind him. The funeral was a big funeral, about 120 people there. And John chose two songs for his funeral. Uh, Amazing Grace and the Lord's my shepherd. That was his message. Isn't that extraordinary? And I thought to myself, have I kept praying for John over the last 50 years? And the answer is no, certainly not. I'd given up so often and failed to pray. And then when I had spoken, nothing had happened. I thought, well, that was a waste of time. But then I thought to myself, perhaps God actually (laughs) used those prayers and those words. For I often find when I talk to somebody who's become a Christian that actually they've been talking to Christians for the last 12 or 20 years. People have been giving them the Bible or talking about faith. And then about the 12th person who kind of interferes in their life is the point where they come to faith in Christ. What I'm saying is that we have to put our faith into practice and trust the goodness and mercy of God And pray to God in your wrath, remember your mercy. Then we will indeed live by faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus, faith in our Heavenly Father, and faith in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In wrath, remember mercy. The righteous will live by faith. I will rejoice, I will exult in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you know the enemies of faith in our lives. You know the boredom which sometimes fills us with you and your word. You know how our sense of failure stifles our faith. You know how disappointment and sorrow stifles our faith, hinders our faith, kills our faith. You know how severely we're affected by others and how their apostasy kills our faith. Please have mercy on us. And we praise you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, in your wrath, you remembered your mercy. We praise you that you're a gracious compassionate, constant, faithful, and gentle God. We thank you that faith is your gift. Please continue to give us this gift, that we might believe your promises and heed your warnings, know your kindness, know your mercy, and hope in Christ's return. In his name we pray. Amen.